If you're an aspiring entrepreneur, start a founder or investor, then you're in the right place. At Stellar Nursery, we think differently and we don't follow everyone else. We believe in dreams, but we know how many failures take place on the way to achieving them. On the show, we chat to successful business owners, seasoned venture capitalists, and individuals moving the human race forward. Uh, be very good at praising and looking for there. the best in people. The hardest thing to do is you know, the one piece of advice is like don't underestimate anyone you come across. You are listening to The Stellar Nursery. Today's guest is an absolute legend and a great friend of mine. He's regarded as a leader in digital transformation. He's an ex-Googler turned digital banker back in his days at Barclays. Uh, he's now the CEO of Terraflow. They're involved in AI and automation for big corporations. He's also been the CEO in his past at SciTech. Uh, they do everything regarding big data and cloud storage. He's an international speaker on the future of AI and technology. In fact, he's the first keynote speaker in Africa to accept Bitcoin as payment. It's going to be a really interesting conversation. Brett St. Clair, thanks for joining me. You are listening to The Stellar Nursery. Brett, it's great to have you here on the show. I know every time I, I chat to you, I get a little glimpse into the future. And we haven't spoken in a while, so I'm, I'm really glad that you're joining me here today so that we can catch up in a little bit about what you've been up to uh, and also a little bit about, uh, about the future and also where you've came from. I'd love for people to hear the story about Brett Sinclair. You've got an interesting story. You've done a lot of amazing things. You have a lot of relevant knowledge for the time that we're in. So, yeah, Brett, thanks for joining me. Gideon, always a pleasure, bud. Um, I have to admit, I have missed our conversations and uh, stuff you COVID. Um, I'm saying stuff you because I forgot okay. to check. Can I say F you COVID on your show? Um, because I might you can say whatever coffee. you like. Okay, fuck you Roll COVID. And natural. <laughs> Here we go. <laughs> um, so it's been it's great to catch up and uh, uh, congratulations on uh, selling your business. Um, it's fantastic news. I know how tough it is. Um, uh, really chuffed, and uh, I love what you're doing in the community at the moment, bud. Um, getting everyone together, really pulling people together. I think it's it's fantastic. So kudos to you, and thank you for having me on your show, man. It's it's, it's a privilege to be here. Um, yeah, do you want me to give a quick background on 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 where I started? Because I can tell you, it's quite easy, right? It was the corner of Ninth and Seventh, and I was working a long late shift. Yeah, and I didn't really start there. I'm, I'm, I'm not, I don't, I don't prostitute myself. Um, so, <laughs> so bad, eh? Got to watch out for these terrible dad jokes. Um, so, yeah, geez, you're right. I've had a crazy background. Uh, used to be a, this is the worst thing to say, by the way, when you walk into a bank, you say to them, well, I started my days programming in COBOL and natural database. You get the biggest job offer you've ever seen in your life. It's millions and millions of rands as the bank goes, please, can you just rekindle your COBOL capabilities? To which you take your walking sticks, you know, the, the, the medical, you know, like well, the, the walkers that old people use, and you shuffle out there quickly. <laughs> um, That's the one thing I can say, Brett. I mean, we had a couple of, before you carry on there, we've had a couple of... Uh, uh, meetings together with some potential clients, and you say the perfect things every time. So whatever your background is, you just manage to just you 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 read the room so well, and you say that the most perfect 
uh, you know, the perfect thing to come out of your mouth. I, th- I think my wife and Mike would like to disagree. She, both of them feel I put foot in mouth more often than saying, I was like, but trust me, in a meeting, I think I'm okay. <laughs> but uh, business partners and wives yeah. were basically the same thing. And if anyone's going to say anything bad about you, it's also going to be the business partner or your wife, right? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no, it's a very similar relationship. You just see your wife less. <laughs> exactly, yeah. <laughs> And a couple other things, but yes. <laughs> and actually, and congrats, I don't know how public it is, uh, with you expecting a child. So welcome to this world of having kids and, and wives, right? And if, if it no, is... No, it's very uh, public, no, thank you. Okay, if it isn't, then you're welcome to cut this part out. <laughs> no, I think, you know, you, you, you're supposed to not tell people those first 12 weeks. Yeah. That's, the, that's what I found out, obviously, going into this. So I had to keep things a secret, which was freaking impossible for me for the first 12 weeks. You know, you get that 12-week clear scan uh, that everything's okay, and then and then you can start telling the world. So, yeah, it's very exciting. I'm still a flipping child myself, so bringing another one into the mix is going to be quite exciting. I feel sorry for Stacy though, but uh, she'll figure it out. <laughs> Dude, may that never end. In my body uh, I and my mind, I still feel I'm 21. And when I was 21, I thought I was 12. So, um it's just my body. Yeah. I, can't keep <laughs> I hear you. Um, yeah, so, Brett, tell, tell, yeah. I mean, I'd love to just hear a little bit more about, you know, your story in terms of, you know, where you come from and how you got to where you are today. Yeah. So, I guess uh, I, I, I'm that individual that didn't know what they wanted to do, left school, did six months worth of university and bombed out. And it wasn't to go and start some magical, creative startup and change the world. It was because I drank for that entire six months and got 13% for accounts. And when you're paying for your own university bill, you kind of go, well, that was a waste of money. <laughs> now I have yeah. to pay that off, right? <laughs> um, so, yeah, from there into programming, learned how to program. I'm, a, uh, I'm an old VZAP. So VZAP is um, Funzel and Pritchard. So the Fenzel and Pritchard guys are the old school. This is how you used to learn how to program. And I see they revitalizing. They're making a comeback good for them. Um, they're a really good bunch of people if you want to learn how to program. And from there, went overseas. Uh, worked in the telco industry, coding and doing pre-sales and project management. Uh, I'm that guy that if you're uh, stuck in a country somewhere and uh, you want some war stories about work, I have literally lived in... Uh, 32 countries for longer than three months, Mongolia, Greenland, all over Eastern Europe, South America, Middle East, Panama, flipping East Asia, you name it, been there, done it. Um, And lots of adventures that come with that, uh, deploying technology and selling technology. And then came back to South Africa, did a startup, failed miserably, um, joined a little business called AdMob. Loved AdMob because from there I learned how to become a marketer. And uh, we were the world's biggest uh, mobile advertising network. They were based out of Silicon Valley. And all of a sudden, Google acquired us about a year and a half, two years later, for just short of a billion dollars. I think it was only YouTube and um, one other that beat that kind of sell price at the time. And next thing, we're in the realm of Google. And here I was, this uh, illiterate, uneducated uh, uh, clown um, working in Google and changing the world and getting to run their mobile business, their YouTube business, their cloud business in the end across Africa. And that's how I got into this, back into my passion of technology, left, went and did, uh, you know what you do when you leave uh, Google, right? You go work at a 
at a bank uh, because the challenges are so fucking vast. <laughs> yeah. And now I'm back into the startup game, cloud and AI and just having the biggest jaw. Hey, got a lot wrong, a lot wrong. Well, you and I, we, we've been through a bit of pain, right? <laughs> oh, man, I'm still wrong. going through it, so don't worry. No, there's, there's, you're constantly, constantly, constantly learning. And, 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 it's, and, and when you get there, you, you, know, you, you look at where you are, you realize the mistakes that you've done. You kind of look, okay, this is where I want to be in a year's time, or that's what I want to achieve. And then you get there, and then there's another milestone that you need mm. to get to. And still not fulfilled and satisfied because you've made 100 mistakes on your way to getting there. So it's like, for me anyway, it's like you're constantly trying to reach the top of a mountain that doesn't exist and enough is never enough. So that's why the startup world is so exciting to me. Uh, entrepreneurs and interesting people like yourselves really keeps me going. There's so much going on in this world and I feel people like yourselves are the, one that, are, are the ones out there that's kind of pushing the human race forward, which is exciting. Well, I hope so, right? Um, uh, I, I'm a big believer that startups are not about cash. It's, um, you know, so many people do get caught in that loop and you're like making more money, you're making more money, you're making more money. Um, maybe it's because I haven't got there where I'm making this ton of cash. Um, what I'm more interested in is is making our industry better. Um, how do I contribute uh, better learnings? How do I help South Africans or even anybody in the world of AI learn from the lessons I've learned from I get, I get massive fulfillment out of that. Um, uh, so I really hope when guys do start making it big, just give back, man. Focus on the purpose. Focus on why are we doing this? I think if you just do it for cash, mm. you are going to end up being this weird, crazy millionaire or billionaire, depending on how far you go. And you lose touch on, on what reality is. Um, stay for grounded, sure. right? Totally. No, I agree with that. Um, you've also done a lot of mo motivational speaking, well, maybe not motivational, but uh, I don't know what the correct is, but you, you've done a lot of, uh, you've spoken with a lot of big corporates in terms of learnings of, of you know, uh, automation processes, uh, artificial intelligence, mm. the digital media as well. Um, is that still a space that you're heavily involved in? Yeah, I get, I get a kick out of it. Um, uh, I have to admit, I started this, what, 12 years ago now, 13 years ago, and I say started it, it was getting on stage in front of people and not letting my knee shake and almost vomit and run off the stage, not knowing what I'm doing and no one could hear what I was saying. Uh, that's where I started because I, I, it was my first startup. And I realized that the only people that are going to make your business a success is yourself. And the only way you're going to make a success is not just through building the technology or building the operations or the processes. It's the ability to generate the revenue. And uh, most of the time, that means either getting your brand out there, getting your personal brand out there or selling. Um, so I realized I had to learn how to speak. I had to learn how to get in front of people, add value. And 12 years of, in fact, make it 10 years of hell getting up on stage, doing all the freebies. One day, a guy called Craig Wing, an ex-Googler, he had just left and he said, great, you, you, you know, you do these speeches, you know, you've gotten quite good at it. You know, you get paid for it now. <laughs> I'm like, oh, I thought it was like a couple of grand. He's like, no, bud. <laughs> <laughs> much different to that. I mean, and the prices are quite big, right? I mean, uh, the Vusti sure, McGuire's yeah. earn over 100 grand per gig. I'm like, wow, want to be there one day. So that's nice pocket money as, a, as an entrepreneur. And if I can add value back into large businesses that are willing to see value in um, what I've learned and how I articulate that lesson to them, um, then that's a nice exchange of value. And large businesses or corporates are the are the um, the organisations that, to a certain extent, run our country mm. uh, and 
processes in our everyday life. So they're the ones that can actually value or, or, or can get value from uh, a, a, a talk like yours, probably more so than a startup because the startups, in my experience, and I've been running around and meeting a lot of people and the startups are the ones that are always uh, open and agile enough to, to, you know, look at what's trending in terms of uh, what technology to use to make your business better. And then um, we're risk adverse, right? Exactly. Yeah, they, they can implement something without uh, not a lot of risk. We're the side of things. It's, an, it's another world. There's a lot of bureaucracy. There's a lot of red tape. And there's a lot of management teams that have been there for a really long time and they haven't allowed in. This is just from my opinion, mm. but they haven't allowed in um, uh, some younger more, uh, you know, an objective point of view on how things can change. You know, uh, you know, you can you could say I'm the Instagram generation, if if, if that makes sense. Mm. I'm certainly TikTok generation. I don't have TikTok, but if it's relevant to my business, I need to listen to every single person that has TikTok, and I need to have an open mind as to what's next in social media realm. For example, it's TikTok. Uh, uh, in in automation, it's something else. But you know, for for corporates. Uh, and we've been acquired by one now. We're a great bunch of guys, but their processes are surprisingly old school. But I know why, right? <laughs> so, so you'll find all these executives were young once, and uh, when they were trying to drive and grow these businesses into the big businesses, they were willing to try new things. And what they did is because it's so hard, I can see what happened, right? They like, ah, oh, this is really difficult. Okay, we got it right. Do not fucking change this thing. <laughs> it's making money. And in times past, and five years goes very quickly, 10 years goes even quicker. And you can see suddenly they're sitting on this behemoth of an organization and terrified to allow someone further down the stack to even change something that is so vital to their business. And yet that is the demise. And that is the demise because the fresher, the next generation of young people who are open to risk and change are coming through going, I'm willing to do this. I'm willing to, you know, tackle that process that takes forever uh, or procure faster. And that's going to give me a competitive edge. And what they don't see is over time, the, the, the older guys is their margins are eroded. Their businesses start slowing down. They do some acquisitions to try bolster it. They get accountants to start cutting corners and shaving things back. Right. They all follow the same trend. <laughs> And over time, they're irrelevant, and suddenly the new guys have come up. And it, what I hope is that out of this new generation of executives, that not only are they diverse in, in culture and color and sex and you name it, and they're more representative of the base that they're serving as customers, but they are more open to continuously adapt. And, and, and I think that's going to be the next kind of secret. So what I, lo I love telling that story. And hopefully that scares the living bejesus out of the big execs where they, you know, they want to trust a Gideon to come into their business, empower you, remove the politics, give you the funding to make the necessary changes they need to start surviving. Oh, that sounds so great, but so hard to convince <laughs> to do that. But you've had a lot of conversations with guys in that space. And for them to even open the conversation with you, it's something that they must be interested in. I'm sure you've seen some big guys start, starting to see the light and, and starting to implement this. Yeah. Uh, number one problem, everyone says it's changed. Now, let's be honest with each other. It's politics. Um, and so, like, I'm, I'm a big Breathe. fan of um, pulling down empires 
So your traditional businesses deliberately build these corporate empires so that you get into this, my career path is climbing a ladder of management. And so like, let's think about that. You're hiring someone to manage some people, but then you're going to hire five or six different levels of managers to manage the managers. That was never going to work, right? It's okay if you're organizing paperwork, but in the world where it's all digital, you need to completely chunk out. And, and it's not a story that corporates and, uh, say, any executive or any manager over the age of 40 wants to hear because you built your entire career around it. And I look at our little business, like we, we plan to be 500, 1,000 people strong, but no management there um, because we're not sorting paper. We're, we're organizing data. We're organizing. And, and what we understand of management is you, uh, what happens in this empire building is that the information they get is what their kind of power base is. So we're saying you need to distill and distribute that information through transparency into the team so that they're equally as intelligent as a manager they too can make these autonomous decisions. And that's where I see the new business model coming out. But the problem is, yeah, politics and power are why these guys are going to struggle to change. So until you remove that whole structure, and I think that's the hard part, um, going to be very difficult for them to change, right? But you either got to kind of, um, you, you got to make the change or, or as you alluded to earlier, you'll start to die a slow death. So it will all naturally, like evolution, just kind of evolve because at one stage a competitor will come into the market and, and start pushing back or doing things more innovative and easier, not only for the customer, but also for the staff, which, which you know, then creates a, 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 a nice working place which uh, retains the best talent in the country or the world. Yeah, and uh, talent, which, right? That's exactly the, the, the product, right? Yeah. You've nailed it on the head, talent. And I think like in these big corporates where you're a manager, ask yourself, is the skill that you have offering a tenfold return in value to the organization that's paying you or hiring you? Um, and so everyone always says to me, oh, you're an AI, you're going to take jobs. I'm like, mm, no, AI is not going to take jobs. AI is going to take out the jobs that were mundane, that supported the society of paperwork. Um, and what it's going to do because of that, it's going to take out the, the, the roles of management. But people with talent and that add value to a problem or to a process or to a business will be there forever because they'll use artificial intelligence in the right way. They'll use it as a tool. Yeah, that makes sense. Um, as a side note, and I won't mention any more mm. on this, but I was asked to print a contract and store it in a file the other day. <laughs> I but uh, laughing painfully inside. <laughs> <laughs> but I don't have a punch. What do you mean a punch? Yeah, what is no, that? No, 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 it's to punch holes in. What? There's something called a punch no. with a punch holes in it? And when when I punch holes in this, what do I buy? No, you've got to go buy a file. What? Can I not? I never use? bought a file in the whole of Green Machine's existence. I never bought a file. But also my desktop, uh, well, not my desktop, everything's on the cloud, but my Google Cloud folders, is, I'm not going to lie to you, it's an absolute... And, but that's okay. You, you've, got, you've got the most powerful search engine searching for it. Mine is also a disaster. I try to put it in an organ, and I'll go, I can't be asked to filter through what the structures were. I'll store it there so other people may find it, but I'm going to use the power of search. Um, that's so true. And that's, that's my, uh, my, my, you know, I always say that to myself when I don't store it. I go, well, don't worry, you don't need to store it. Because if you really want to look what happened on the 9th of you know, November in 2007 uh, from Steve, you can just search it and you'll find it. So I've done that as well. Yeah. 
definitely helps sometimes when it's in a folder. <laughs> um, Brett, tell me a little bit about uh, about TerraFlow. Yeah, it's been an interesting journey, right? So um, it was Sciatic before. Well, we were running Sciatic. I bought into Sciatic, and that, that was an interesting time. Caught the founders with their fingers in the till, uh, which wasn't a pleasant experience because, A, it's it's embarrassing, right? As CEO, you didn't see how much money was being taken out. So you've got to judge. You've got to question. You always, you know, when I heard of those things, I used to be like, well, why wasn't the CEO on top of things? But the funny thing is it happens so small, and then the guys get greedy, and then they take big chunks very quickly. And you know, even in a small business, when your revenue is doing this, and then so you're monitoring your revenue. You're like, oh, I'm happy with it. And you kind of ignore your margin. You start wondering about your margin. Going, Why is the cash still not there? <laughs> So off the back of that, you know, intense. It was a hectic time of my life. Learned a lot. Learned that lawyers are now your best friends. So anyone who's listening, you know, any contracts you sign, you get a lawyer, spend the money. I must admit now at TerraFlow in all our documents, uh, all our international transfers, um, all our tax, all our South African Reserve Bank, all these different things. We, we seek legal advice and we spend the, in some cases, flipping hundreds of thousands of rands to get that right. Make sure you're compliant. Make sure you're covered. Make sure you're safe. Because when things do go wrong, it's it's disastrous. It, it was a dark period of my life. Um, and you know what actually is also interesting? The more I talk about it, because I was hesitant to talk about it in the past, the more I hear about entrepreneurs where it's happened to them. And it, it's I would say it's about 60% of the people I speak to. It, somewhere along the line, they've had people sticking their fingers in the in the cookie jar kind of thing happened to them. So it was great. We, we formed a Terraflow off the back of it. Um, 70% of the team came with us. Um, we had to start with a team of 12 people, which meant we, we needed customers quickly. So we, we, we had to formulate our position well, and, and we focused on one thing, making AI work. So, so a big realization to us was, and they're four of us, they're four founders, right? We each own 25%. It's built on trust and transparency and, and an equal bond between five people with very different skills, backgrounds, and cultures. And, and we said, we need to focus, solve one very narrow problem and solve it incredibly well. And in the world of IT, you keep getting pulled in many directions. So we said, what we're going to do is we're going to solve making AI work. And that alone is quite a large field as you get into the detail of it. It spans into cloud compute. It spans into the modernization of the computer. It spans into DevOps, uh, machine learning ops, data ops, building real-time data pipelines. So the guys that we have in our team are, like, by far, I'm the dumbest guy on the team. And I do kind of aspire to Richard Branson's always be the dumbest guy in the room, and if you're not, you're in the wrong room kind of thing. Um, why? Because there are always people much better than you. I think your job as a founder or a CEO is to understand the focus area that you're trying to solve really well, but be a generalist across the business to support and enable and build the capability. Um, so we have these amazing guys, man. Like we've got guys and girls who with PhDs in machine learning and biomedical engineering and OMG. The com I have guys reverse mentoring me. And I've got to ask them to do it three times in a row because I'm like, I don't know what you just said. <laughs> that's amazing. So it's yeah, been, that's where you want to be. I mean, yeah, fabulous. someone said to me once, always hire people smarter than you. Yeah. yeah. And it seems like you've, you've taken that on. You know, Gideon, actually, uh, one of the things I've also learned in that same kind of frame of mind is um, in as a service provider, so we, so we offer essentially services. We're a boutique consultancy in the space, um, is um, uh, we're the guide. So 
it's so hard when you're running your own business. You always want to be the hero. You want to be like, yeah, I'm going to go save the day. Blah, blah, blah. Hey, client, I'm going to save your day. Blah, blah, blah. And I think that's the, that's also an old-fashioned way of doing it. So we've changed our kind of approach to a very empathetic guide where we say, okay, customer, you, because your customers are people at the end of the day, you want to be the hero. How do we help you be the hero in your business? How do we help your business be more successful? Or you get a promotion or you get a salary increase or you build a competency that's going to change your business. And ever since we've shifted into this Yoda role, um, A, we've gotten off our little higher horses because everyone always wants to go, yeah, aren't I a hero? To, wow, it feels so rewarding to help build other people into heroes. So I'd really advise lots of business. I think even if you're selling product, even whatever you're selling, Make your customer the hero. Um, very, very powerful proposition. That's good advice. What, what, what are the um, uh, the kind of strong tools that you guys are are pushing in your consultancy process that are, that are kind of more some of the interesting uh, products? Yeah. So, um, so in the world of data science or AI, so the picture is a big square, and the top corner you've got data science where people are building models and they're trying to change the world. But what you're finding is they run the model once. And it's not really effective thereafter. So you've got to retrain this model. Now, you're retraining it on data. Now, the problem with most businesses is that data is dispersed everywhere. So we actually spend so much time fixing people's data. And then once you fix that, we build the what's called an operational process. So the ability to formulate, reuse data, uh, reuse models, and get a model from inception into production in, in days, not in months. And then you repeat that process again and again and again and again and again and again, 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 again to get the best performance out of these models. And just doing that, that's probably 90% of the human effort in this world is getting that right. So we spend so much time with uh, large organizations like telcos, banks, insurance, airlines, health, and they're all starting to realize, oh, crap, I need to do it. So we look at our business as though we're plumbers. We come in to do the dirty work. No one wants to do it, but there's tons of it. Um, and we build out this amazing work. So the secret sauce in that space is one thing, hyperscalers. Um, if you want to get, from a tooling point of view, um, machine learning or big data right, don't fuck around building stuff on site. And if you're going to use Poppia or you're going to use GDPR or you're going to use some kind of compliance in your industry as a reason, best go hire better lawyers. Because I can tell you that is not a reason to completely overspend on IT and then miss on the opportunity to use these next next technologies to completely revolutionize your business. You're scared. You don't know what to do, so you're hiding behind these compliance reasons. Um, and that's the hard, cold fact. So get into the cloud. Uh, we used to be heavily into Google. like love Google. I still love Google. Of course, I'm an ex-Googler, but the technology's off the charts, and they've done a really poor job in engaging in South Africa. AWS has done a phenomenal job in engaging, and they, they really are just a shit-hot uh, sales and, and partnership team. And then you've got Microsoft, you know, everyone's like, I'm a Microsoft, so it makes sense. And I'm like, yeah, yeah, it's, it's not bad. It's okay. I don't mind doing work there because you're going to pay three, four times more services because it's stupidly complex, and you don't need it to be that complex. Um, so I'm, I'm a big advocate of if you're going to go hyperscaler, pick between AWS or Google. Uh, good for different reasons, figure it out. Um, but you have to go hyperscaler. Like we've seen it where guys used to process data that was maybe a, 
okay, we deal with petabytes of data. Maybe it was a terabyte of data for most businesses, and it'll take weeks to process. In the hyperscaler, it takes seconds. So if you've suddenly moved and saved that much time, you can now train a million times. And if you're training a million times, you've got a million times more advantage on any other competitor that hasn't made this investment in the cloud. So yeah, to your point, the best tool, go hyperscaler um, in this world. And don't, you can argue all the security and all that kind of stuff. If you're doing that, again, you're a moron. Uh, you clearly don't understand the, the the new principles and frameworks behind these hyperscaler security platforms. They are phenomenal, beats anything on site. So my big warning to anyone who's listening to this, if anyone says, yeah, but to that kind of advice, um, seriously think about their credibility and you know seek other advice. Go say, seek a second opinion because you're getting the wrong opinion. And um, I, I, I've wanted to ask this question and don't uh, feel free not to, to mention any names, but in some of the businesses that you've delved into uh, from your time at Terraflow and SciTech yeah. and so on, um, have you seen some interesting things in terms of really archaic processes? And oh. what have you seen? Oh, archaic processes. Yeah. Oh. Well, I can tell you right now, and, and I absolutely, Absa is one of my favorite clients. I've actually also used to work at Absa. Um, didn't do any work with them for two, three years. Um, and, you know, you think that you'd still keep your kind of connections, but you know what, you've, you've got to prove value to your, to your older businesses. And I'm a firm believer in not burning bridges as well. So we do a lot of work with them. And um, in the world of data, especially, so what happens at the moment is everyone has on-site stuff, which means you have limited compute, which means you schedule compute times. And you have applications that are running, so it means when they at peak, you don't want to touch the thing because it's it's like a, it's sticky tape and string holding these things together. So you you decide to put your data extraction or your batch jobs for reporting in the wee hours of the morning, only to find that you know I've got these data fragmentation um, misalignment on time, and you move it into another data warehouse, and then. Uh, then you start to struggle to find a single source of truth. So then you manipulate the data further in another set of warehouses and you combine it with another set of data. And that's what's been happening for 30 years. So like take a bank and in all fairness, I mean, there's some seriously talented guys there, but the difficulty is computes on site. Um, you're sitting with 700 applications and you're trying to understand just one little thing about one customer. It is crazy complex um, and it's legacy. And, and, and of course, you know, CIOs and everyone's like, well, I don't want to touch this anymore. And the longer you leave it, the harder it is to get it into a modern state. And if it applies to an APSA, it applies to, I've even seen, like, again, one of my favorite, Kim, I'm sorry, I'm calling you out on this, um, uh, 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 Kawabunga, uh, new little startup, um, but they invested in, in, in a bunch of software engineers that built just the most rubbish legacy stuff. But now Kim had to keep this thing going because she was just growing so quickly because she's doing logistics in COVID, exploding and amazing, but she's built an amazing business. And now she's got to make these decisions, right? Oh, I'm still a new business, but I'm stuck with legacy. I can't get out of this. I need to re-engineer. So she had to make some really difficult calls where we've gone in to help her bring it into a new age of DevOps, microservice her stack. Now she's there and she's gone off. She's got her developers and they built microservices and she moves at 100 miles per hour. She moves as fast as a Google when it comes to innovating. So 
doesn't matter how old your business is. It doesn't matter how big your business is. If you're not thinking about how to quickly respond, you're going to find yourself very much in that shitty space where the codes got old, the infrastructures got old, the applications no longer talk to each other, and, and you're having to stitch everything together with Excel and then maybe print it out and then put it into a file and reorganize it. <laughs> oh, God. <laughs> that sounds terrible. In terms of uh, one of the barriers to these big organizations adapting these processes, you feel that one of the barriers is trust in this uh, in these new softwares and in these new uh, tools out there? Yeah, I think that is a massive barrier. So there's a barrier for a couple of reasons. So first of all, the new – so technology, 10, 20 years ago, the problem with it is a lot of it was built in really old-fashioned ways to build technology, right? So hardware fails. And you can buy really good hardware, but it still will fail. It just has a less percentage chance of failing. But if you put lots of that hardware together, so if you put a 1,000 storage drives together, I guarantee you every 15 minutes, one of those drives will fail. So that's why you need a combination of hardware and software. So when that hardware fails, the software is managing the load balancing. You don't notice it. And that's a modern way of doing things. So now what's happened is in the large organizations, they've built the trust mechanisms around procurement. And what they do is they try to evaluate different businesses. They, they, they know they're going to make an investment in this. Uh, they're trying to get the best price, so they look for longer-term relationships with them. So they do these five-year deals to get a bigger discount, and they commit themselves wholeheartedly. And then they generally get stuck in this legacy stuff. And so now they're sitting there going, well, we put in all these procurement processes to get the best people. And you know the guys who are still around with us cool but you know the old stuff hasn't moved forward they're guys that we invested in that went bust and we left with their code uh, no one's supporting it what a disaster so now we're going in with this new world and you're saying check monday.com man what a brilliant product how, how long has that been around four years and you can see the large four years like how can they be how can they be amazing um I bet Squadcast, using Squadcast, yeah, it's probably been around for two years. You know, like how can we trust that they'll be around? How do we know we're not going to find ourselves in the same situation? So they have to understand the new paradigm of technology, which is this software-driven. And in fact, we're shifting beyond software-driven. We're moving into this world of AI-driven stability, optimization, efficiencies, reuse, um, because you're no longer going to let a human do that, Right. Um, those kind of things can be done by an autonomous engine. Yeah, one hundred percent. And got, you know, touching on on all the new processes that are being adapted around the world from organisations to governments, like the US government, <sighs> any government. <laughs> you had to ask: Have you been following the elections and and how the new processes have been in terms of mail-in ballots and and do you think that's been a positive thing the election or? Um, so like, I, I mean, I, I'm, I'm not a big political heavyweight though. Uh, about two years ago, I did make my view fairly clear at, um, my broadband cloud in front of, how many was it? 2000 executives where Aki was interviewing me and he said, um, what did he say? He was saying something about, uh, oh yeah, we were talking about the China U S uh, trade wars that they were having and what my view was. 
And I said to him, it's very easy. It really distills down to two words. Fuck Trump. Um, so, <laughs> and he was like, oh my God, you're never going to get into the US. So I have to admit with the new kind of regime there, I'm feeling like, well, I'm pretty much sure I'll get a visa now <laughs> into the US. Yeah. Um, well, there's th- there used to be two things that you never speak about. So, yeah. But there used to be two things that you never speak about. It was politics and, re- and religion. Mm. Now there's three. It's politics, religion, and COVID-19. Because there are so many views on the virus as well. Wow. I, from from like yeah. crazy conspiracy theories to, I mean, it's a whole... whole and it gets world. scarier, right? Because you don't know what's, what's fake news, what's not, and, and influence, right? Influence is really an ad. It can influence you into buying something if you see the ad nine times and it kind of resonates. Um, so a lot of this fake news and politics and religion and views on COVID, there are agendas behind everything. Um, and what those agendas are, it's very unclear. Um, I, I mean, I'm very much I just like I'm alive. <laughs> yeah, I, yeah, I don't yeah. believe in lockdown. I believe in data. I do believe in masks. Creed. I I don't believe in uh, I don't know whatever. I, uh, why? What is the rationale behind it? I don't know. I don't know. I just sometimes you're in the woke situation and the unwoke situation, and you would never have thought that maybe washing your hands would have a, a left or right view on this. <laughs> Who would have thought that there was a political view on that? Crazy. <laughs> yeah. So yeah, the the politics here scary. Um, I must admit, no matter what regime is in power, where I have one view on politics, government can be run by blockchain. Why? Because you cannot change the decision of blockchain. So you put all the programs that need uh, governance, i.e. building roads, investing in infrastructure, blah, 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 blah. That can be loaded onto a blockchain. You pay your taxes into the blockchain. And then depending on where you live and what the power of your vote is, you vote on which supplier gets to use that money to deliver on what society wants. It's all transparent. There's no corruption because I think there's corruption in every government and artificial intelligence and the blockchain. Keep it transparent, secure, safe, and it's the people's vote. Fuck the politicians. Completely agree with you. Um, but no, I'm probably going to get hunted down and murdered by one now because I put that out there. <laughs> yeah, you got to be careful. The guy I'm speaking to is not Brexit. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> Michael Cowan. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, Michael. <laughs> Censorship is another big one that I've we've seen uh, kind of being quite relevant in the media with regards to the the U.S. election as well as um, people's views on the virus and how it can affect. Uh, different situations, lockdowns, wearing masks, etc. cetera. Uh, that's all being controlled by big tech at the moment. And they, they seem to be the ones that have the power to turn on or to turn off someone's freedom of speech. And of course, these are businesses that can do what they like. Um, but there's got to be some point where they're stepping over the line. I don't know if that's something that you picked up on or, or feel the same way. Totally. Like I've got a really strong view of that. A, I've worked in one of those such businesses. Um, And what I enjoyed about Google when I was there, there was only 5,000 of us. And so we were a bit of a startup and we had really strong um, views on morality. So at the time we were trying to figure out, you know, this is uh, what is the value of information to what type of human and where are they in the world based on the regimes, the culture, the religious, uh, religious belief systems, 
And, and how do you support all of that so that you rank them equally, right? That's a really, really tough proposition um, to figure out. And you've got to train your AI to be able to help you with that. And what I loved Google about Google in those days was I remember when uh, Larry announced to everyone that they would be doing um, uh, lobbying. And it was, it was like a funeral, right? We, he got us all around and he was like, you know, we, we're going to have to start investing in lobbyists. And at the time, I had no idea what a lobbyist was. I was like, you know, what, what the fuck is a lobbyist? And he's like, and he explained to it and he explained to everybody what a lobbyist was. It's someone that you will pay in your salary that will go into Washington and essentially uh, campaign for what you want and which laws you want to have influence over. And, and the reason why is Google's getting hammered by the Microsofts and the Yahoo's and the, they were getting killed by their lobbyists. So they need to counteract. And what's happened in Washington over the last 10, 15 years, and part of me likes lobbyists because it's kind of saying, yes, I am going to bribe my way into it. And it's pretty much out in the open instead of hiding it behind the scenes, which is what most governments do. But then I also have a problem with it because big business controls government. And surely government was meant to be you know, representing the people. And even big business through shareholdership and the stock exchange is meant to be controlled by the public, right? But now most of your shares are owned by other big businesses. So I think that's gone. Government's now being controlled by big business. Um, and therefore, there's lots of corruption. Um, and when it comes to you know uh, censorship of voice, which I think is incredibly important, and I thought platforms like a Twitter were really important to voice and give scale to people who never had a voice, um, what you're finding in the media now is it's become very clear those who advertise have a sway in what the content position is. How do they have that sway? Well, I'm spending my money with you because this is the audience that you attract. And I feel my product is best sold to that audience. And in this case, it's left or right wing, Fox News or CNN. You know, or, or, I don't know. I, don't, I think Fox is right and CNN's left. Who knows? CBS. Anyway. So and then so what you've got is the decision makers in those media houses going, well, where do I get all my money? And the same thing in the tech media houses. Facebook has Unilever, right? And and so does Google. So uh, Unilever can very much influence, and they have to the right or wrong. They've said to Facebook, you know what? Unless you get rid of fake news, we're going to pull all our media spend. That's awesome. That's fantastic. But that's also screaming another problem. That guess who controls? what these tech companies do. It's the advertiser. So I'm very much in the game of, especially with the world of payment engines and subscription engines, that we need to move away from this free product where you're the product. If it's free, you're the product, you know, those analogies. Move very quickly away from it because there's nothing free in life. So we need to be choosing what we pay for. Even if it's a couple of cents, rather choose what you pay for to get rid of this influence. That'll solve the problem, right? Because whose moral dilemma is it? Is it is Mark Zuckerberg's going to decide our moral stance on speed or speech? Fuck that. No, he's a weirdo, man. Um, is Elon Musk going to? Is, is, is Jeff Bezos? I mean, these people are disconnected from reality. Let's disconnect the influence, which is where the money is. And that'll disconnect where the power is because now business is controlling the, the thought process into people's brains and ears. Business is, is controlling uh, the, the the legislation that's governing us through government and lobbying and, and bribery under the scenes, say, in South Africa. Um, decouple all of that. Sell the real value that people are willing to pay for. And I think we're going to solve a lot of the world's problems just by that one small analogy. 
and that decoupling of influence. But that's my own little like passion in the world, and I'm going to keep on. And I'm a big fan of fighting against big business, but it's quite an interesting thought, right? Decouple the influence. Totally, and I, I, I completely agree with what you're saying. I really resonate with with what you're saying. I mean, if you if you think about it logically, and if you understand how business works, and sometimes you know ignorance is bliss, and sometimes it is. Um, but if you're ignorant to how everything works, then you ignore these little things that you're talking about. Um, at the end of the day, if you understand how it works, which which you do, Google is not a search engine. It's an opinion engine because what drives the results of search is the advertisers. And if you want to promote your product as the absolute best uh, four-wheeler in the world when it's actually, you know, in terms of the mechanics, you know, probably ranked the 98th best four-wheeler in the world or whatever, if you pay Google enough money, you'll be number one in the world. And that's and that's you know a good example of what you of what you're saying. Agreed. So um, uh, there was a, a show on Netflix, uh, which was something a philosophical. It was about all the the, the recommendation engines. Um, I can't remember what it was called. Now it'll, it'll come to me. But essentially, not the social the dilemma. social dilemma. Thank you. And yeah. you know, like I watched it, and I yeah. I'm, it's very one-sided, and I'm going to say why it's one-sided because they report on it very accurately. I thought it was fantastic coverage, and the viewpoint was amazing. But what was missing was, you know, five to seven years ago, as an industry, we were looking at the power of a recommendation engine, and the downside that we could see was the creation of information bubbles, because what it would do is the more you uh, like or consume content, so your content is shaped around you. What none of us saw in the industry around these recommendation engines that have been manipulated by the likes of Trump and, you know, as well as Obama. I mean, he was the first to win on a social media campaign using this recommendation engine, understanding how the recommendation engine works and how to influence people's thoughts around that. And that was not what it was planned to be. It was planned to get the right content in front of the right person so that we could position the most relevant advertiser to you when you needed it. That was the utopia that we're all gunning for. And I think, as usual, there's a dark side to everything. And the owners of content, which are business or political influencers, have decided that they understand these algorithms quite well and have manipulated them. So we've ended up in this really funny space. And I think all these algorithms are now being manipulated. And it's the question is, how do we strip that out? And, and, and I think if you try to think of a technical solution, it's pretty much impossible. You've got to think of a moral solution, pretty much impossible. So it boils back down to, ah, let's just decouple the influence, pay for the services you want. <laughs> that makes sense. And I've heard someone else come up with that theory as well. And it makes sense. And that's where the world is going. And, and, and you know, sometimes it's a couple of cents. It's not always going to be this ridiculously expensive service to search for which restaurant to go eat at, you know? Um, but there's definitely been some sort of shift in, uh, in access to information where, you know, access to information used to be seen as a freedom for people that right. um, otherwise access to that. Mm -hmm. They use that to educate themselves, hire themselves uh, to make political decisions, etc. And for a very long time, it was, it was a good thing. Uh, and, and now, uh, you know the big big tech companies are kind of fighting back against that, and and what you search for is now what you see, which is why there is so many. But but people are, are intelligent, and um, there is uh, competitors coming out. Search engines like DuckDuckGo, 
it doesn't filter out uh, a lot of the content that uh, that Google does. So things will change. So I'm very optimistic. And it's difficult, right? Because um, Google has done a phenomenal yeah. job at leveling the playing field for access to knowledge, and they've changed the world. And I'm super proud of being part of that. And social media networks have done a super job in connecting people and, and changing our worlds. Um, I just think it's it's ripe time for a new player to come into the market with a different ideology. So I do agree with you. Like a DuckDuckGo, that's going to be a very interesting play. It's quite interesting to see how people are going to market themselves, right? Because you're essentially using the tool that is the problem to drive the use of your tool. And uh, that's a bit of a dilemma. So like without marketing, totally. yeah, how do you let goes. people know? Yeah. Without social media, how do you let people know? Um, do we go back to the good old days of word of mouth? I don't think we do. So it, it's easy for me to say it. The the application yeah. is quite difficult. My, I mean, my whole business was run off of, in terms of its marketing, 99% of it was run off Facebook, mm. Instagram, mm. and Google. Mm. And those, those are, that's two companies there, Facebook only Instagram. That's two companies that my entire marketing strategy was riding off of. If you don't have faith in those or you choose not to put your product out into, onto those platforms, you're in a difficult situation. I've got a friend who owns a crypto business and because of all the uh, restrictions on advertising, uh, it's, a, it's, a, it's a, a cryptocurrency trading bot. And he has to really think of some innovative, interesting guerrilla strategies to actually get his product out there because LinkedIn, uh, Google, Facebook doesn't out. Yeah, no, it's uh, it's difficult. And you can see why the LinkedIn's and Google, they want to be seen to making the right moral decisions. Um, but again, I think they too suffer from too many power plays and management teams. <laughs> they too have gotten big. And I remember Larry and Sergey always saying, we never want to be that business. Um, and it's just too difficult to not be that business. I don't know what the alternative is. I'm testing something in my business called Swarm. Uh, so it's uh, organizing your business through an autonomous swarm of skill and talent. Um, and and it removes that management layer. Will it be successful? Well, I think we're going to have a heavy reliance on how we measure performance, uh, the type of people that we uh, employ in our organization, the responsibility layers, the the... the the comfort zone, I think it plays well into the world of remote working um, because how do you effectively manage people who manage people who manage people um, without them being around? They're now all remote. Now you're just doing a whole lot of just video calls talking about what. Um, so, yeah, I think they all struggle from it and they're going to be these interesting new organizational models that will come through. Whether they're right or wrong, let's see. But I actually do challenge all businesses who are listening Try different things. Um, don't be comfortable. I, I've spoken to quite a few people in, in business, and I do like you, right? I seek advice on what I could do better and where am I struggling. And the one piece of advice, when I mention Swarm, all of them go, don't do it. Don't do it. it it's hard enough. And I'm kind of like, mm, I think we need to do it. I, we need to scale differently. You need to be like your mate. You know, like we can't use the same old things. And, you know, sometimes we're forced by the regulation or the compliance in that tool to do it differently. Hustle. You know, find some guerrilla tactics, do things differently, do things better. Um, super challenging. I agree. Um, Brett, yeah, thanks. It's been a great conversation. To end things off, I've got a couple of last last few questions. Um, what does the workplace look like now with COVID-19, with uh, people starting to work remotely, vaccine, no vaccine, whatever you want to call it, things will eventually go back to some sort of normal because of these new cultures and new ways of working and living that we started to feel comfortable doing and, and adapting to, 
we might not necessarily go back to the old way with a lot of them. One of them being, um, you know, these strict nine to five hours, hour in traffic, sitting in a flip office. Um, is that going to change? How important is it? Is it important? How important is remote working? What are your thoughts on how that how that will change in the future? Um, yeah, it's a big thinking topic, right? So if I look at the business process and see where the impact is there. So uh, let's take marketing and advertising. Uh, offline is dead. Um, who watches TV anymore? Uh, who who uses sees billboards? Who uses newspapers? Who no one does any of that anymore, right? It's it's streaming. It's online. Um, so I think if you're offline media, yeah, it's it's gone. So your advertising and marketing is purely online now. Um, your ability to sell um, is gone all online as well. And I think it becomes even more so important to have your video on. Uh, we have a culture of video on. Um, even with our customers uh, who generally use Microsoft Teams because it's such a rubbish platform, they all have to turn their videos off. And um, <laughs> and uh, we don't. Uh, why? Because the human connection's going. So now we've proven that we can sell over a video conference call. Um, so it means you're selling your direct face-to-face -face time where you build a relationship watching people's facial expressions, how they hold their hands, body movement. That's all gone online. So marketing, advertising, all of that's gone online. It's no longer offline. I'd love to see it come offline again, but I don't think that's necessarily the case. And I look at business like a Monday.com. I must mean, I love using their tool, but how they sell, they've always sold through video calls. And they've built this monster of a business, billion dollars revenue turnover. I mean, it's fantastic. And that was before COVID. Um, and then I see the guys who are working um, in the knowledge space. We've always essentially been remote working. So we aspire to a, a work anywhere space. So what we're looking at is how do we empower our staff to, to work anywhere? I mean, we've been tied into leasing agreements. Those now come free this month. Yeah. We've had a 400 square office with one person going into work every day. No chairs, no laptop, <laughs> no screens or anything around. Because why? We've shipped them all to our, um, our team's houses. Um, so they've got decent chairs to sit on, decent screens. We pay for connectivity. So what you've got to enable is the same capability. And then we said, okay, what do we do now? We still want some kind of interaction. So we, we did a, a poll on Telegram. And we said, guys, so who wants to stay at home? Who wants to go into work sometimes? And who wants to only work from work? One person said work from work. 40% um, uh, said uh, work from home and work. And the rest said, we want to work from home. And so we, we're working with that. We, you, you've got to manage people differently. You've got to engage people differently. You've got to do stand-ups differently. The agile way of working is now almost the only way you're going to be able to work. If you think you can lock someone away for two weeks and hopefully they come out and do the work, forget it you need to be agile you need to be touching talking fixing problems every single day um and i like the concept of work from anywhere because it's starting to challenge our our leave structures why why have set leave uh, i really do see you know like we're seeing it ourselves guys will move down mike he lives half his time in kenton the other half in in joburg i'm going to be spending half my time in london half my time here why can't I, uh, I myself or one of my team be in Barbados and um, it, two days of the week they're on holiday, the other three days of the week they're working? Who cares? It's value and output. Those are the new terms that we need to get our heads around when it comes to a new way of working in the work anywhere space. Um, I hope that answers the question.
Totally, completely. Uh, at the end of the day, you actually need to just make sure that you're giving one of the aspects to it at least is giving your staff the flexibility to work in a space where they're productive, but also comfortable and happy so they can execute on their responsibilities correctly. And they don't. Because driving, yeah. I mean, I don't live in Joburg, but using Joburg as yeah. an example, you drive, depending on where you live, you could be sitting in traffic for an hour every day. Mm. Going into the office, in the office, especially for someone like me who's got ADD through the frigging roof, I can't sit in an open plan office with 500 people asking me questions, do nothing. <laughs> you know what I mean? Right. Um, so there's definitely pros and cons to, to working remotely. It definitely isn't for everyone in every industry, but it's certainly taught organizations to look at things a little bit differently. And where I think it's done really, really added a lot of value is those really old school archaic organizations where the staff work by the bell, get there at nine, leave at five. Literally, as soon as that bell goes, they're pretty much off. They've been forced to innovate and, and work remotely and, and, and change the way they do things, which has now allowed the employers who never trusted their staff, even though they probably earned the trust, some of them, now has forced the employer to trust their staff because if they want to uh, you know, walk downstairs at half past eight and they've only been working for 20 minutes and make a sandwich for 45 minutes, who cares? They're going to ex execute on their role at the end of the day anyway. And it's just giving... That, that trust factor and that enjoy and, and that kind of enjoyment back into into what you're doing because you know working for a company with an aspiring and charismatic CEO as well as a cool idea and a, and a great vision to tie yourselves to aren't the only reasons um, for enjoying your job. It's also the culture and uh, and your day to day kind of working environment. I mean, like for us, uh, our biggest thing is culture. That, right? Our biggest thing is culture. How do you build this and maintain your culture and, and evolve your culture in this new space? And we do believe that it does require getting together. I must admit we've done a great deal with um, WeWork. And you think WeWork must be taking strain now. You go into the offices, they're empty. Um, and, okay, we, it wasn't a standard deal of theirs. Um, but what we've done is we've got people in Cape Town, people near the Santon office, people near the Rosebank office on the other side of Janisburg. Uh, we've got people in London on two parts, the sides of London. So one's probably easier to get to Hammersmith. The other one's easier to get to Waterloo. So we've grabbed five offices in a deal um, where we've got some permanent space in some of them and some remote space. And we've packaged up this global working deal. Why? Because we've also realized that our staff could be anywhere in the world. Uh, they might start in South Africa. They could end up somewhere else. They could start in one country, work in another place. We're looking for like-minded people who want to do cool shit and want to have flexibility and work in this world of trust and transparency. Um, so you're right. You, there, there are times where we have to get together. And when we get together, boy, do we do hardly any work. We do more party than work uh, because we're just so desperate to spend some yeah. time with people. <laughs> yeah, I can imagine. Yeah, take care. Cool, Brett. Well, it's been awesome chatting to you. You're a great guy. You've got so many interesting things to say. Always have a great conversation when we're together, and you've got flipping amazing energy. I do have one or two more questions for you in terms of, you know, there might be some younger guys listening to this, might not have started a business, might have started a business. Maybe they're stuck in a bit of a rut and they're trying to think, I've got this idea. What do I do? How do I start? Where do I go? In terms of advice that you have for, um, well, what advice do you have for any aspiring entrepreneurs mm. with? cool ideas what they do what should they do i think uh, i used to have this whole plethora of advice um uh, for people because like i've i've done this four times now 
um, and I've had three failures for multitude of reasons. And I, and I think the two pieces of advice are, the first one is if you're in a stable job and you don't have a six, most likely 12-month runway to not have a job, stay in the job. Work on that idea. Your first step is create that runway. And you think it's six months, it's actually 12 months. And in fact, it's not 12 months, it's 18 months. So you're actually going to borrow uh, the next six months. Uh, Gideon, you've lived through there, right? <laughs> I've lived through there. Have the runway. Oh, man, you're talking my life. <laughs> <laughs> right? I sold my card once then. Right? I literally thought, I was like, I'll be a billionaire in two months. So if I quit now, that makes sense. <laughs> right. That didn't happen. And I had to sell my car. And that was just a small insert of that beginning. Right. Of being and, and why don't people tell us that? They're all like, oh, no, you'll be amazing. No, you need to work on. No. The first one is make sure you have that saved. If you don't, well, then you best go find someone to fund your business. And But most people don't want you to fund an idea. So you're going to have to do this. Um, so save. Guys, it's not that difficult. I've had a family. I've always been in a startup with kids and a family and having to pay private schools, and, and, and it's been a disaster. So if you really want it, you'll find the debt, you'll find the savings, you'll make the plan, you'll hustle, you'll save, you'll scrimp. That's how much you need to want it. And the second one is before you start or if you have already started and you start Googling what are the best skills for me to have? And I actually did this the other day and, and all these amazing publications came out with these amazing list of skills and competencies and what you're going to have in your business. You know what no one ever said was learn how to sell. So if you're going to read a billion books, do not read a billion books on however you're going to do your product or whatever in your idea or how to code or, you know what, if you cannot fucking sell, then you're never going to get your money back. So number one thing, learn how to sell. Because if you can learn how to sell, it'll help you figure out how you're going to market. And it'll help when you figure out how to market, you'll be able to get your product fit to market right. And if you get your product fit to market right, you'll be able to figure out the, the opportunity and the problem you're going to solve. And you're going to be able to figure out the costings and whether you have a business model to be able to make some money. And then you go back and you say, no, I know how to sell. So I'm going to go and sell this. And it could be direct sales over a website or you know, at the end of the day, there's always some motherfucker you're going to sell to. So learn how to sell. And I have to give it to you as well, Gideon, on my final note to you. I still rate you as one of the best salespeople I've met. And I'm sure you learned that lesson very quickly. I suppose I had to. Um, yeah, no, sales is, is super important in any business. More important than than you might think, as you alluded to. Um, I think on the on the sales side, you know, a lot of people view that industry as if you don't have qualifications or an education, you kind of slide into that process or into, into that mm. position mm. because because anyone can be a salesman, which is not true. Um, and I think the most, if I had to give anyone advice on sales would be, and you have already spoken about it in terms of how to connect with people on video and you've got to keep that video on. And I completely agree with that. You know, anyone's, your first um, goal of going into any meeting when you're trying to sell someone to something is to, if, if you're going to do anything, is to connect with that oh. person. Oh. If you don't even talk about the product Correct. in that meeting, just connect. Applause. That's it. 1,000%. 1,000%. <laughs> Guys who put up a laptop and get behind a presentation, I'm like, are you fucked? Dude, like, just build a rapport. Just build a rapport. If that's all you do, that's all you need to do. I agree. Hardest thing to do? That's it. Meeting one is that's that's pretty much that's that's your focus. Mm. On the mark. Great tip.
Awesome, Brent. Really, really cool to to chat with you. Thank you so much for joining me on my brand new podcast. Well done, dude. Your, your episode three or four, I think. Um, but I really appreciate and, and I and I really hope that you'll join me again in a year's time so we can talk about some more crazy shit that's probably happened or that's going to happen in the next 12 months. COVID-32, welcome. Here we go. I have no doubt, something crazy. <laughs> Thanks, Gideon. Thanks for having me on your show, bud. Thanks, Brett. We'll chat soon. Cheers, man. Thanks, Gideon. Nice to chat with you. Perfect. Thank you. Have a nice evening. Uh, be very good at praising and looking for the best in people. The hardest thing to do is, you know, the one piece of advice is, like, don't underestimate anyone you come across.